The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Romans chapter 14. If you turn there, please. Romans chapter 14. Our subject this evening is the fifth letter of the Baptist acrostic. And we are discussing doctrines of the Baptist church, doctrines that define us, doctrines that make us different from other groups that also call themselves churches of Christ. And as we've discussed, there are some interpretations of doctrine that we have that are the same as other groups. But as we look at this Baptist acrostic, we'll find out as we uh, get to the point that we're finished up with it, that there's no one really who interprets all these doctrines in the same way that Baptists do. And one of the things that I have to be clear about as we look at this, that even there are many Baptists that are not in exact agreement with each other on specific details about every one of these doctrines. And so we have different Baptist groups. There are Southern Baptists and there are uh, conservative Baptists, there are regular Baptists, there are independent Baptists, and more and more groups. And uh, we have all these differences because there there is some differences of opinion on the doctrines that we are talking about here. I think that's apparent in our discussion of the Lord's Supper that we've had over the past few weeks, that there is much disagreement on how restricted that the Supper should be. There are various opinions about the openness of it, but one thing is sure among all of us that are Baptists that all of us are non-sacramentarian. That we do believe that the ordinances of the church are not a means of conveying grace to anyone. And we'll stick by that and all Baptists do agree with that. Now the subject that we have tonight takes us back into controversy among Baptists. Uh, some Baptists have an organizational body that they belong to outside of the church. While others do not. And there are churches that cooperate with other churches in fellowship. And those churches uh, may be in agreement or think they need to be on certain points of doctrine. You know, we go back to the A in the acrostic of the Baptist acrostic. That means the autonomy of the local church. And there we see that autonomy can be infringed upon sometimes by some Baptists because they want to submit to another authority. In order to stay in the good graces of the fellowship of the churches, that they want to be in, they'll get rid of some of their differences in doctrine so that everybody is the same and they'll be in agreement. Well, we don't necessarily believe that there is any group that is outside the church that can require us to get rid of all the nuances of doctrine that we have that make us different. And really, that's going to be the crux of our study tonight as we look at this particular subject. Now, that is a statement, though, that I think needs to be explained because the church certainly does have the authority to limit people to a certain interpretation of some doctrines so that we don't have any division in the church on the major doctrines. But what we want to talk about tonight is the I in the Baptist acrostic, which stands for individual soul liberty. So we fill out one more letter in our acrostic to get to the word Baptist. First is the B, biblical authority, and A, Autonomy for the local, of the local church. P is the priesthood of the believer. T is two ordinances. And then I, which is individual soul liberty. So we're very close to filling out this acrostic entirely. 
And if you're good at the Wheel of Fortune, you know that in the end it is going to spell Baptist when we're done. I might actually add an S on the end of it till we get Baptist, and we may just put one more in there. I haven't sure I'm going to do that yet. But our text for this evening is Romans chapter 14. And in this chapter, Paul touches on this subject and he gives us a good definition for soul liberty. I'd like for us to read the first 12 verses, which will give us a good overview. Romans chapter 14, verse number 1. Him that is weak in the faith receive you, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth, yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord, and he that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not, to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Now my purpose this evening is not to give you a verse-by-verse of uh, commentary on or exposition of this part of the scriptures. Uh, there are many areas of doctrine that Paul addresses here. Uh, but what I want to show you is that there are choices that each of us make. There are issues that we need to decide. There are decisions that have to be made according to our conscience. Uh, the key verse for this subject would be at the end of verse number 5, where it says, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Now that doesn't mean that truth is relative that you can decide your own version of the truth, but it simply means that we cannot and we should not be forced into a belief system. Soul liberty means that we have the right to form our own opinions about what we believe the Bible teaches. Now, that doesn't mean that your opinion is right. It just means that no one can force you to believe something that you don't believe. There's not a preacher, there's not a pope, there's not a church that can tell you you must believe this particular thing. We don't have the right to do that. Now, as I said before, all of that requires more explanation. And this is why this part of the Baptist acrostic is one that is probably the hardest for most people to see through and to understand. What about this issue of soul liberty? And what we want to do is kind of clear up some misunderstandings as we go through the study of this over a couple or three weeks. And uh, those differences of opinion and misunderstandings of this often have disastrous consequences. But before I go further... I want to give you a basic definition of soul liberty so that all of us know we're on the same page and we clearly understand what soul liberty is all about. 
Ivan Castile, in his exposition of the Baptist acrostic, gave this definition. He said, God has given the freedom and ability for individuals to know and respond to his will. God has given the freedom and the ability for individuals to know and respond to his will. And then Castile goes on to say, each of us is responsible for our choices, our decisions, whether good or bad. And I think that you can see by that definition and what he says here that this is the reason why this is a part of our study of biblical discernment about wisdom because there isn't anything that requires more wisdom than this. And that is to make the right decisions. There are consequences for decisions and the decisions that we make, we're responsible for how we choose. So you had better be sure that you make the right decisions. Now, God does give us the ability to choose. He doesn't force our decisions. And to make the right ones, we do have to have wisdom. And that wisdom that we need is also a God-given gift. And it's wisdom to conform to His will. Now, we recognize this, first of all, that we don't know and we don't believe everything is right. We come into the Christian life without knowledge. We're mixed up about things. We don't understand doctrine very well. And so we do have to learn what the Scriptures teach. We have to be taught. And so as we begin to learn, the right doctrinal opinions are formed and our minds are are changed about the right interpretations. And the change of mind comes as we submit to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And that's a change that can't be forced by any of the teachers that you have. Uh, You hear doctrine explained. You listen to it, you uh, hear what the teacher says, you look at the biblical proof text for the doctrines, and then you turn that evidence over in your mind, you weigh all of that, and then you decide what you're going to believe. In other words, as Paul said, you are persuaded in your own mind, and that's when you choose what you believe. Now, many of you are here in Berean Baptist Church because you have decided, uh, you've made a choice, you've heard the doctrines that we teach, And you've weighed those out. You've seen the evidence that we give for them. And that evidence is sufficient enough to sway your opinion. And so you have decided that this is how the Scriptures are to be interpreted. Now, as you know, I've always said this. Don't listen to me just because I say something. I don't want to be the one that persuades you. I want the Word of God to be the thing that persuades you. Now, sadly... I will say that there are some people that have left Berean some long time ago. Some folks left here because they weren't persuaded. And that was their choice to leave. They could go elsewhere, and as far as we're concerned, remain in ignorance. They had the choice to do that. We couldn't force anybody to stay, and that's what soul liberty is about. We don't put a chain on the door and say, once you get in here, you can't leave here. You have to believe what we believe. No, again, Paul says you must be persuaded in your own mind. And one more time, I say that is a statement that does need explanation. Now, sometimes I wish that that I in Baptist stood for irresistible grace. And that I would say to you, I I would just really like it if God would just put it into your head and you would get it right and you have no choice and you have to believe this. You know, many people who look at the doctrine of irresistible grace, think that's what it means. That's not what it means at all. First of all, irresistible grace is not for, uh, or the uh, soul liberty, I should say, is not for the person who's not a Christian. 
I mean, there's an element of that, but we're talking about what do Christian people do, the choices that they make about doctrine. And the reason I say this is because unbelievers have no ability to follow God's will. They don't know how to make the right choices. Their decisions are always going to be against God, which points out the reason why we must believe in the effectual grace of God, because without it, we would always make the wrong choice. And so when, when we come to the right conclusions that we need to about Scripture, that soul liberty is at work in us, that God has put into us, and it starts to function the way it should as we understand or, or follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Now, we do need to understand that, hold that uh, um, soul liberty is not about regeneration, but it's about sanctification. That's what our whole series is about. It's about sanctification. Soul liberty begins with salvation, not regeneration. Now, unfortunately, many Baptist people don't understand the difference between salvation and regeneration. And because they don't, that confuses them many times on issues of soteriology. There isn't anybody that can force you to salvation. God doesn't force you to salvation. He regenerates unbelievers underneath the consciousness in order that they can make the right decision about Christ. You can look at John 3, verse number 8 to find that doctrine. So we're not talking about regeneration here. We're talking about what happens in salvation that once we have been given the ability to repent and believe, once we've trusted Christ, then we have a whole new world of choices that are made up to us or given to us that we weren't able to make before. Now, the next thing that we need to do is just break this down and see what the Bible has to say about soul liberty. So first, we're going to look at affirmations, the affirmation of soul liberty. Can we actually find it in the Scriptures? Does the Bible teach this? Well, the Bible does, in fact, teach it, going as far back as the beginning to the creation. God created man and gave him soul liberty. Adam was the representative man. He stands as the federal head of the human race. God made him, and then he put him into the garden, and he gave him choices to make. Either he could obey God or he could disobey him. And God gave him the consequences of each of those choices. And so Adam had a decision to make. And the decision that he would make was a momentous decision, as all of us know. Because whatever Adam decided to do, that had implications for the whole race of men forever that would follow him. Now, we see that Adam made the wrong choice, and it did have devastating effects on the human race. You see, this tells you that you might really love liberty, the liberty to make choices, but don't ever think that you can take that privilege lightly. Now, as a Christian, the choices that you make are either going to lead you down the path that God wants you to follow, or they're going to lead you away from God. A bad choice about doctrine, a bad choice about your morality, has bad consequences. Now, you need to understand that things like a bad choice for financial gain may in fact lead you away from a good church to another place. Now having choices then brings with it responsibility. It can affect your family, it can impact your life for the rest of your life, but you do have the choice. In regeneration, God ensures that you're going to make a right choice about Him but then when you repent and believe, you do have the ability to make those choices that you didn't have before. But at the same time, you have the old sinful nature in you. It still affects you. And what it does, it works against the good choices that you should make, and it causes problems. 
So to this word responsibility, the responsibility to make the right choices in our Christian liberty, we have to add to that accountability. Look at verse number 12. So then, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Verse number 10 says that we are all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul expounded on that in 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 10. He said, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So we are responsible to choose rightly because we're going to give an account of the way that we choose. So we can't say, I have choices, God gave me choices, and how I choose is inconsequential. Some people think that their right to choose, that's the most important thing. Not the choice that's made, but the fact that I have the right to choose. Well, it's not that God wants you to have rights. That's not the main thing that he's concerned about. He wants you to choose right according to his will. You see, God cares about that. God cares about our soul liberty, but it doesn't have with it the excuse to make wrong choices. There's always accountability. Well, does the Bible teach soul liberty? Well, Jesus also affirmed it. Have you ever read in the scriptures where Jesus hit someone over the head and said, you must follow me? You remember the discussion we had about John chapter 6 when Jesus was teaching on the spiritual aspects of eating his flesh and drinking his blood? And the Bible shows us there that, that was very difficult teaching for people to accept. And because of that, there were some that stopped following Jesus. In verse number 66 of that sixth chapter in John, it says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Well, that tells us they had a choice. He never forced anyone to follow him. The twelve were convinced that Jesus told the truth. There were others that thought the same. But then there were some who said, we're not going to follow anymore. We just can't take that doctrine. And Jesus didn't say to them, do it or else. Well, there were certainly bad consequences for their choice, but Jesus never forced anybody to follow him. Likewise, when Jesus chose his disciples, they had a choice to follow him. Now, we do know this for sure, that it was a sovereign, effectual call that he gave to the disciples, but we also know that the Bible very clearly teaches that there is human responsibility. The apostles weren't forced to follow Jesus. They were persuaded in their own minds. You may remember how Nathaniel was impressed that Jesus knew about him before he ever met him. Uh, he had doubts when Philip came to him and told him, we found the Messiah. And uh, he said, well, he said, he, he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel said, well, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? He already had a preformed opinion about people that came from Nazareth, and so he wasn't at all convinced that Jesus was the Christ. But then when he finally met Jesus, he was so impressed with the fact that Jesus knew him before he ever met him that his opinion changed, and he decided that he was going to follow him. So we don't find any forced disciples in the Scripture. Nowhere in the Scriptures does the highest religious authority of all, who is Jesus Christ, ever force anyone to become a Christian. Now, you need to remember that as we go through the study because that's going to be important when we get down to the last observations that we'll make about this subject. So where else in the Scripture do we see soul liberty? Well, in the Lord's work, sincere Christians have disagreements. Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement. They were good friends. Both of them were 
very capable missionaries. Both of them were followers of Christ. Both of them believed and responded correctly to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. But there came a time when there was a sharp contention after their first missionary journey. When, when they first went on their first journey, they, uh, Paul and Barnabas took John Mark, who was Barnabas' nephew. And as they were, you know, I think that maybe John Mark functioned as something like a valet to uh, Paul and Barnabas. I mean, there were things that he took care of that Paul and Barnabas didn't have time to take care of because of the ministry. But then John Mark decided that he was going to return to Antioch. He didn't want to go any further. And so he left, and that left John or left Bar- Paul and Barnabas in a lurch, you might say. Now they have to do all this work themselves, and that was a hindrance to, uh, to the missionary trip. And so when it came time for the second missionary journey, uh, Barnabas decided, well, let's take John Mark with us again. And Paul was very much opposed to that because he didn't trust John Mark. And so there was this real sharp contention between them. They were very sharply divided, and so they decided to split up. And Paul chose Silas to go with him, and uh, Barnabas chose John Mark to go. Now, very noticeable in that story as you read it, is that although there was a difference of opinion, neither of those men condemned the other for their choice. Now, you, you see what Paul could have said. He might have said to Barnabas, Now listen, Barnabas, I am the one who was commissioned to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And you're going with me. You must go with me and force him to go with him. Well, Paul didn't do that. Instead, I think probably what happened is that Paul prayed that Barnabas and John Mark would have great success in preaching the gospel. And I'm sure that Barnabas did the same thing for Paul and Silas. They prayed Paul and Silas would do great. Who was right? Well, the Bible doesn't actually tell us. Because from there, the narrative goes on to follow Paul and Silas, not Barnabas. But we do find this out later, that Paul changed his mind about John Mark. And perhaps John Mark, he would have. He changed his His methods changed what he was, and so Paul said, John Mark is very profitable to me in the ministry. And so you see that sincere Christians can have these kinds of disagreements, and this is what we see in chapter 14 of Romans, that uh, we can have these disagreements, but each of us is going to give an account to God. You and I are not responsible for each, each other's choices. We answer to God individually. And I don't want to force you to my opinion, because if I did, that would make me responsible for you. And I don't want to be responsible for you. So when you stand before God, you're going to answer to Him for yourself. I'm not going to do it. Nobody else is going to do it. And that, essentially, is what soul liberty is. Now, going back to Jesus for just a minute, He gave many examples of soul liberty. One of those is found in a disputed verse in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3, verse number 20. uh, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and 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 will sup with him and he with me. Now, some people might raise their hand and say, Hallelujah, that is a salvation verse. And you look at that, it's all up to you. It's all up to you. You do what you're going to do. That's not a salvation verse. Look at the context of it. It is a church verse. And what this is talking about, the church is Christ's church, isn't it? I mean, he has the right to do with the church as he pleases. And if he wants to, he can knock down doors. 
He can do that if he wants to, but Christ chooses not to knock down doors. Instead, he comes to the church and says he knocks on the door and he gives the church the choice of letting him in. And the church can decide to do it and have him lead them in the right way. But it seems that many times the churches don't want to do that. They don't want to open the door. They're not interested in answering the door. And if they don't, what Jesus does, he passes on by, he blows out the candle in the church, and the consequences of that are bad, but he does leave us with a choice. That is soul liberty. Now we also note that there are conflicts, often conflicts. Soul liberty doesn't mean that Every Christian in the church can do what he wants to do. So liberty is not meant to teach us that each of us can do whatever it is we want to do. Whatever choice that we want to make, that's going to be all right. Now, the definition of soul liberty has to do with God's will. It's conformity to God's will. It's not freedom to do our will. It's freedom to do God's will. And soul liberty never takes away from God's sovereignty. Soul liberty never limits God. But soul liberty itself has limitations. Soul liberty is not God, which is what many people think. Because I have the choice, then that's God. I'm God. I can make choices. Well, let's look at this next. Secondly, we want to look at the limitations of soul liberty. Now, in verse 8 of Romans 14, Paul said, For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die... We are the Lord's. Now, the liberty of our soul runs into the limitation of our soul when it conflicts with the Lord to whom we belong. Now, the Lord insists that there's going to be unity in his body and that we do submit to the leadership of the Spirit. The Spirit does not have a different will for each of us, which means that though we may have different opinions, not all opinions are equally valid. We're allowed to have our differences. We can have differences in preferences, but we're not allowed to have differences in essential doctrines. And then even in our differences, uh, our preferences should not be so precious to us that we won't give them up when they interfere with the unity of the church. And so your liberty of preference cannot run all over my liberty of preference, preference, and neither can mine yours. So the unity of the church, that's the most important thing more important than the right to insist upon a contrary opinion. Now, in the 16th chapter, Paul wrote, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple." Now, soul liberty cannot be turned into an excuse to serve self. I mean, have you ever heard this saying that there are too many chiefs and not enough Indians or too many cooks that are in the kitchen? You see, there are too many times that people want to impose a different idea on everyone else and chaos results from that. So soul liberty also contains within it the right to suspend soul liberty for the good of us all. Likewise, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. 
Now there's the place that soul liberty stops. It stops at contention. You don't have the right to, to break the church apart because of your disagreements. Now, I, I can tell you that this is a part that gets very confusing because where's the line drawn between the side that says, I am right, and I know that I'm right, and the side that says, I'm going to surrender my rights because it's not really all that important. And so we have to step through this very carefully because of the limitations of Bible interpretation. This will be important to us. Now, one of the things that soul liberty teaches is that you have the right to interpret the Bible. You don't need anyone to stand between you and God and say, you can't interpret the Bible, I need to do that for you. You don't have the ability to do it. You're not incapable of approaching God for yourself. Now, at that point, you probably see that soul liberty parallels what we talked about with the uh, priesthood of the believer. You are capable, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, of interpreting the Word of God. And yet the Bible sets a limit on that interpretation. Second Peter 1 verse 20, which is another disputed passage, says this, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is a private interpretation. Well, what, is, what does he mean by this? What does Peter mean by private interpretation? Well, you have those like Roman Catholics who say that you do not have the ability to interpret any scripture. But the magisterium of the church, they're the ones that can interpret scripture, so you go to them and they'll tell you what it means. That destroys soul liberty. But then there are some who are more orthodox, orthodox about this interpretation, and they say, well, this means that you can't interpret scripture without Holy Spirit leadership. And that might be right. Uh, that's a fairly good interpretation of it. But I think it's more correct to say that it refers to the origin of the word. That the prophets that wrote it were not writing their own opinions. But they wrote the words that God gave them. And so what we might do is to mix those last two interpretations. And say that whatever else that it says, it, it, it is definitely God's word. And there is no one who has the right, or I should say there is only one right interpretation of God's Word. Now, the right interpretation of the Word is what the Bible, or not, I should say, not what the Bible means to you. It's what the Bible means. We're not really interested in what the Bible means to you. We're only interested in what the Bible means. So, soul liberty doesn't allow you to put your own twist on the Scriptures to interpret them any way that you want. And so when you interpret Scripture, it puts you under the responsibility of prayer and of study and of Holy Spirit guidance to arrive at the true meaning of it. And so you're limited to that type of interpretation. Now, soul liberty certainly doesn't mean that you don't need teachers, that you don't need anyone to instruct you in the Word of God. Now, I, I've studied the Bible probably more than anyone in here. But I dare not lean solely upon what I think that the Scripture means. And so what I do is I go to trusted resources. I read. I learn. I make an informed opinion. And what I've learned about Bible study is that when I open the Bible, I don't have to reinvent the wheel every time I read what's in Scripture. But rather I can go and I can look at what learned men have said about the Word of God. And I can decide whether I'm going to trust their opinions. 
But many times before I even do that, I study the Word of God for myself, I arrive at a conclusion of what I think that it means, and then for verification of what I think it means, I may go to other writers, go to commentaries, go to other things and say, well, does that person agree with the conclusion that I've come to? And when I see that, and when I'm affirmed in the belief and in the correct interpretation, what I think is the correct interpretation of the Scripture, that is a very, very good feeling. And what I know from that is that the Holy Spirit is not going to lead people in different directions. There's only going to be one interpretation of the Scripture. We need to get that right, and it's good to be affirmed in what, what, it, what, uh, what you think is right. So a good thing for you to do is when you arrive at your opinions of Scripture, go somewhere to check it out. Maybe you've missed something. Maybe you've not thought about something correctly. And you'll see it where someone else has written about it. Someone has tread this path before. Many have tread the path before. And there you'll find some interpretations that will tell you that, well, you've not thought this out clearly, and you might even change your mind. Now, I want you to look at verse number 13 in Romans 14. We didn't actually read this far, but it gives us a good conclusion about soul liberty. It says, Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Now that verse is telling us that we have to be very, very careful about how we use our soul liberty because we don't want to cause another Christian to stumble and fall. Now I've, in the past, I've used my dad as an example of this. When I was very young, my dad never drank coffee. Now he used to drink coffee, but when I was young, he stopped drinking coffee. When he was called to pastor um, his first church, it was in a rural community with many farmers. And at that time, the main cash crop in Kentucky was tobacco. Everyone grew it. Everyone smoked it. Everyone chewed it. They spit it. They snorted it. Whatever you could do with tobacco, they would do with it. And my dad taught that that was wrong. But he had an uphill battle because that was the livelihood of about three-fourths of the church. They all grew tobacco. They all used tobacco. You might even remember I told you this story about how that we had an old potbelly stove in that old country church that was up next to the front. And in those cold winters in Kentucky, everybody wanted to sit next to that stove. And so my dad would be preaching, and in the middle of a sermon, you'd hear something go, That was somebody spitting on the potbelly stove, spitting tobacco juice on the stove. Well, as I said, my dad had an uphill battle right there in church. You know, they're chewing tobacco and had their cans, their spit cans and all of that. That sounds gross, doesn't it? <laughs> I, I just have to tell you this. I, some of you haven't heard this part of it either. When I was, uh, when I was in kindergarten in that church, uh, uh, you know, what, four or five years old in the kids' department, we had a teacher. She was a big lady, and uh, she chewed tobacco, and she had no place to spit it. So she would pull out her dress, and she'd go right down the front. I don't know what she had in there to catch it, but um, she had to get rid of it somehow. This is the kind of thing that my dad faced with, uh, with preaching on this particular subject. So he was preached against tobacco. Well, there was a fellow in the church that didn't like my dad preaching about tobacco. And so he said, well, you drink coffee. And drinking coffee is just as bad as chewing tobacco. Well, my dad, Soul Liberty, said, I can drink coffee if I want to. You're wrong about that. Drinking coffee has nothing to do with chewing tobacco. But instead, my dad said, well, if that's what you think, 
And if that's a stumbling block to you, that's the thing that you're going to use for your excuse, then I won't drink coffee anymore. And he never drank another cup of coffee. After that man died, and after my dad had left and gone to another church, he never drank another cup of coffee the rest of his life because his soul liberty ran into the stumbling block. And that's when he said, my soul liberty is inoperable here. So what I'm trying to tell you is that the Bible teaches that there is a limitation to our soul liberty, that we have to withdraw that liberty sometimes when it's going to be an offense to someone. The Scriptures teach the same thing. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 12 and 13. But when ye sin so against the brethren, and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. So we see that sometimes the exercise of your soul liberty can be dead wrong. Even though the thing that you want to do is right in itself, it can be dead wrong when it becomes a stumbling block for another person. So if, it's, uh, if it genuinely offends someone, then it becomes a sin to you, even if that thing in itself is okay. Now I think about things like this when we think about the, the alcohol debate. That, that's a, a similar problem. I don't understand this, but there are some Christians who argue that drinking alcohol is a matter of Christian liberty. I disagree with that. But let's suppose for a moment that alcohol is okay. Oh, I would have to ask the question, is it good for a Christian to spend up his soul liberty on alcohol? I mean, there, there's, there's no substance in the history of man that's done as much damage to families than alcohol. How many people are killed on the highways every year by it? And uh, how many alcoholics are there out there? And how many Christians could testify that their lives were ruined before they were saved because of alcohol, and they gave that up, and they stay away from it. But you say, oh, but uh, that isn't me. I'm a responsible drinker. I never get drunk or abuse it. And I would have to say there isn't any such thing as a responsible drinker. For a Christian, that's the height of irresponsibility because you put yourself in a place of constant temptation. What if something goes wrong? What if there is an accidental misuse? Then what happens to your testimony? What, what happens to the reputation if you do that? Now, on top of that, there's reckless disregard with alcohol for those who associate it with things that are evil. And if you take a look at this, at alcohol, uh, it is associated with almost every form of debauchery that there is in the world. You think of any kind of vice that you want to think of, and somewhere in there, alcohol is going to be associated with it. Why would you want to spend up your soul liberty on something like that? Well, if alcohol is okay, I mean, suppose we come to the conclusion that guns kill people, or guns don't kill people, people kill people, and so we've decided alcohol is okay. It's not the alcohol that actually hurts anybody, it's the, it's the people that use it. Well, again, is it not dumb for a Christian to spend up his soul liberty there? Now, especially, I would say preachers, because I do know some preachers who believe that it's all right to drink alcohol. They'll argue this very point. This is a matter of soul liberty. But I would tell you that if I found out that a preacher used alcohol, he would never preach from this pulpit, because I would say that his biblical discernment is so poor, who knows what else he doesn't know what to do. So I don't want him standing my pulpit, or God's pulpit, to preach. The biblical discernment's no good. Everything else that he says is going to be suspect if he does that. But some don't care. They say, well, it's my right. 
This is my liberty. This is my soul liberty. My soul liberty trumps everything. My rights are the thing that counts, so this is what I'm going to do. And that is not what the Bible teaches about soul liberty. There are limitations on it. Now let me make one more note before we finish tonight. There's more significant information to come next week. But let's finish by making this point about the limitations of soul liberty. Soul liberty does not say, I make the rules. That I have the freedom to do as I please. Now our study of the Ten Commandments negates that because... Um, that, that kind of fallacious thinking because it's God who sets the standard. God is the one who makes the rules. Exodus chapter 20, God says, I am the Lord thy God. So the law of liberty is the liberty to obey the law. Now we can make that a statement on our listening sheet tonight. The law of liberty is the liberty to obey the law. You see, when you're saved, you're set free from the condemnation of the law, but you're not set free from obedience to it. The holy law of God sets the parameters for all of our decisions. The law is comprehensive. The law covers every situation that is known to man. Now, your soul liberty, then, does not say that you don't need to obey the law, and neither can you put yourself above the law, and neither are you free to make new laws. That becomes important in next week's discussion. Now, on one side, you have people who want to live without the law. That's what we call antinomianism. The law has no effect on us, so we can live without the law. And then on the other side, you have people that want to live with more than the law. That's what we call Phariseeism and legalism, and we don't want to go into that. So we can't be either of those. We are subject to the law and only the law. Now, let me tell you what that means to the church. And that's important, what it means to the church. I mean, after all, we talk about the Baptist acrostic. There isn't any such thing as a Baptist without the church, so we have to bring the church into it. What does that teach us then about soul liberty? Well, it teaches that you are a member of the body of Christ and that you are to function as a member of that body. Eyes and ears, hands and feet, all of those are individual parts and all of them have individual functions that work for the good of the entire body. On my second trip to California in the 90s, I, w- I was visiting my brother in Napa, and during the week uh, that I was there, I-, I got terribly sick. My stomach hurt, my back hurt. I couldn't move in any way without being in pain. And so finally, in the middle of the night, I told my brother, I need to go to the hospital. So he, he took me to the Queen of the Valley, and, that- and that's a name that has a totally different meaning some 20 years later. But he took me to the Queen of the Valley Hospital in Napa, and uh, with only... Within only minutes of being there, uh, they, they took me from the emergency room and rushed me into surgery and said, your appendix is about to burst. And so we've got to take out your appendix. And that was, that was before they did the laparoscopy and all of that. I mean, this is the full-blown, we're going to cut you open and get that thing out. So I spent six days in the hospital, in, uh, at Queen of the Valley Hospital, and all the things that you have to do there that goes on with that. Well, my appendix is what I'm trying to point out to you. The appendix was an offending member of my body. The rest of my body could not put up with that. And so the rest of the body said, get rid of it. And that's what all the sickness was about. The pain was all about. You've got to get rid of that thing. Well, it's only a small part, very small part of your body, but it's not independent. When it acts up, everything else in the body is affected by that. So the appendix could not say to the rest of the body, well, tough luck. I'm a member of this church. I'll do what I want to do. 
I'll stay in this body if I want to stay. And even if I'm behaving badly, hey, I've got soul liberty. I do what I want. Well, likewise, you're not a law to yourself. Romans 14, verse 7, For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. That tells you that you are subject to the body under the law of God. And so when you offend, the church body has the right to discipline you and to enforce the law against you, and your soul liberty is not going to protect you. That's where soul liberty stops. You're not an island of law to yourself. And so you can't say... I've got soul liberty. I'm a member of Berean Baptist Church and I just do what I please. Try it. And see what the rest of us will do to you who do what you please. There will be an exorcism. Well, let's leave it there for tonight. Soul liberty is a great subject. Next, next week we come back to this. And, and I want to show you, you know, I think it, the next part's really interesting to me. Uh, maybe, I can't remember how many parts we have, two or three parts, but I'm going to talk to you about how soul liberty figures into the history of the Baptist church. How, how Baptists have, that's been a very, very important part of Baptists throughout the history and what that means to the history of the Baptist church. Let's pray. Father, we come to you thanking you, Lord, for your word and for the subject that you put before us tonight. Just ask you, Lord, you help us to have understanding uh, some of this maybe everybody didn't get and trying to figure out what soul liberty is all about. But most importantly, want, we want to see this, that it involves following your will. We have the liberty to follow you and the ability to do that. We have the choices that we can make. And, Lord, you impress upon us to be very carefully considerate of everything that we do in order that we do make the right choices and exercise this liberty that you've given us in the right way. Bless your people, Lord. We thank you for those who are here tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.